0: So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: A science story, huh?
0: Is NYU
2: scientist scientist? I felt it. Right. I was so happy. And unhappy. I just thought, well, I figured it out. Wow. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side.
3: Hey everybody, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Erin Barker, and today we're presenting stories about the science behind dating. We'll explore the pressing questions that we all have on our minds when it comes to this topic. How do we know when we've found the right one for us? Are we meant to settle down with just one person? When is it too early in the relationship to suggest the use of penis numbing spray? Today's episode will answer all of these questions and more. Our first story is from Josh Gondelman. It was recorded in May 2018 at our 8th birthday fundraiser extravaganza at Caveat in New York.
1: Hello, everyone. Uh, What a pleasure to be here amongst you and for such a good cause. And... Uh, don't worry about learning while I'm talking because I have nothing of value to impart. In fact, uh, I'm going to talk about how science almost ruined my life. So, But it is a story with a happy ending. This is a story about vanquishing a nemesis, which is very exciting, and it's hard work. right? Most of the time, when you want to vanquish a nemesis, it takes decades. you got to learn how to sword fight in a cave. Find the six-fingered man who killed your father. It's a process... <laughs> It's an ordeal. I did mine in three days. That's half a week. That was pretty good, I think. Not to toot my own horn. And to increase the stakes, I will tell you that my nemesis was the CEO of a pharmaceutical company. Thank you. Yes. Which sounds very impressive until I tell you that he is the CEO of a pharmaceutical company that exclusively manufactured a penis numbing spray marketed towards premature ejaculators. So... Less of a worthy adversary, I think we can all admit. Because we're talking about a medical scientist who at one point was like, you know what, you guys handle cancer. I'm going to hook it up for the dudes who think sex feels too awesome. Why? No reason. Um, Have you been talking to Sheila? So... It went through clinical test after clinical test, paperwork after paperwork, which is an unbelievable commitment to the plight of premature ejaculators and an unbelievable slap in the face to anyone with a different incurable disease. Just like, screw you, Ebola. I need to help the guys who can't not come. Um, Because if I don't, who will speak for them? The reason... He was in my life at all Is because I used to do a lot of freelance writing For women's magazines That's true And I got an uh, an email from an editor That I worked for pretty frequently And she said, Josh, will you test And write about a penis-numbing spray Marketed towards premature ejaculators And I responded as any man would Why would you even ask me that? That's never happened to me before (laughs) And then she wrote back explaining how much money she would pay me to do said article and experiment. And I just wrote back a one-word email, just YES, all caps. Then I had to send a second email apologizing for how fast the first email had been, how (laughs) brief it was. Promising future correspondence to be more mutually satisfying. (laughs) Offering to pay for brunch. You guys get it. So I pick up the penis-numbing spray from her office, and I go right from there to, like, a third date with a young woman. We'd been out a few times. We were really getting along. Hadn't spent the night together at that point. And we have a few drinks. We're having a lot of fun. And I mention my writing assignment. And she said, very understandably, uh, I'm not into that idea at all. <laughs> Which, like, of course she wasn't. We hadn't had sex without performance-enhancing drugs. She doesn't want me coming at her for the first time with, like, a dead-eyed, remorseless Javier Bardem in No Country for Old Men boner. Deciding who lives and dies on a whim. Flipping a coin on the tip somehow. So she says, I'm not into that at all. And I said, fine, I'll take care of this on my own because I'd been drinking and decided to yell the most self-righteous thing any man has ever yelled while he was leaving a date to go home and masturbate. (laughs) And that's what I did. I went home. I took out my penis-numbing spray, one of the three canisters I was given. I was given, excuse me. And I, I used the maximum recommended dosage. I used 10 spritzes. Which, you know, you're using a sketchy medicine when it's measured in spritzes. <laughs> you never hear, like, give me ten spritzes of cortisone. We're losing him. <laughs> Spritz him. <laughs> I used ten spritzes, the, the most that they recommended. I wanted to do one more. I did. I wanted to do one more so I could be like, my penis goes to 11. But... <laughs> I didn't think it was worth potentially ruining an organ on my human body for the sake of a Spinal Tap reference. So I did 10 spritzes, and, uh, and I, I was trying to gauge whether I felt anything, and I didn't, which meant it was working. <laughs> so I got to work, because I was a professional. <laughs> And I didn't know what was going to happen. And I was, I was a little nervous. I, I was hoping that there would be enough to write about, but also not so much that uh, there were lasting effects that I'd have to explain to future sexual partners. <laughs> so I, I got to it, and it wasn't awesome. Like, I don't know if it's just me. Maybe there are some other men here who can empathize. But for me, a big part of enjoying any sexual experience is uh, being able to feel my penis. And... <laughs> I could not. It was out of the question. Missing in action as far as the sense of touch goes. The Master Meaning felt kind of like listening to a fish song. Like I was 22 minutes in, no end in sight. <laughs> Just a lot of like, like, is this thing still going? I thought the live version was supposed to be better. So I finally, I finished. And it it wasn't, um it wasn't, fun like normal right like normally when you get to the end of sex for a man it's kind of like a moist firework followed by a brief apology and it's a lot of fun but uh, this wasn't like that at all this was it felt like you know how sometimes you have some friends over and you get pizza and the friends leave and there's like one slice of pizza left and you can wrap it up in saran wrap or you could find a Tupperware and it seems like a lot of work so you just kind of like buscemi style wood chip it down your mouth It was like that but down here it was a bushemi style orgasm which is not a pizza topping i recommend So that was that was the story i i wrote it i filed it didn't think much of it did edits Finally it goes up on the the magazine's website and uh, Great. But 30 minutes after it runs, I get an email from the CEO of the company that made the penis numbing spray. And he was not happy with me. Probably because I put all the things in the article that I just said to you out loud. <laughs> None of those things were that the product didn't work, by the way. He was, the, the active ingredient in this penis numbing spray was lidocaine. Yeah, there's some scientists in here are like, wow, that's like a topical anesthetic that you use for like endoscopies and some eye surgeries and some some local anesthesia for other surgeries, which means my penis was medical grade numb, like the kind of numb that you need someone to pick you up and drive you home after getting, although I was already at home because that's where I masturbate because I'm a gentleman. (laughs) Thank you. So, I felt like although it wasn't a ringing endorsement of the product, it was certainly factual and made its efficacy known to the public. So, I know he was mad at me. It is important to note also, I did not read the email at no point. I still haven't. But I knew he was mad because the title of the email was This is ridiculous. (laughs) And I could tell from reading the little preview that popped up on my phone that the body of the email was not like a video of a pug pushing another pug in a stroller. I think he's probably pretty mad. That would be ridiculous, though. Ridiculously cute. Uh. So uh, I ignore his email entirely. I don't respond. I don't open it. It's just there in my inbox. I actually say out loud to no one in my apartment, he'll hear from me when I hear from his lawyer. Which is just a thing I heard John Hamm say once on television. So I go to bed. And then the next morning I wake up to an email from his lawyer. It's like, touche nemesis, the game is afoot. Which is just a thing I heard Benedict Cumberbatch say on television once. So I have to get a lawyer to deal with his lawyer. Yeah. And so they're going back and forth. Because I can't go to jail over this. this it's not worth it. I was full of remorse, I was full of anxiety I, I was unhappy And I was nervous for my future And our lawyers are going back and forth I assume one would just call the other And be like, objection, and the other one would be like Overruled, and they'd both hang up Because I know nothing about the law So about three days later I get a call from my lawyer Who just said, everything's okay Everything's been smoothed over With some minor edits to the article Uh, there's, there's no more legal action that's being threatened or going to take place. Breathe easy. And I did. I felt very good until 30 minutes later when I got another email from the CEO of the penis numbing spray company, which I didn't read. <laughs> but I did respond. Or right, Dear Chad, which is not even his name. <laughs> he just had a Chad-like demeanor, so I called him Chad. I felt like I was above the law at that point. I was running on endorphins. I said, Dear Chad, I believe our business to be concluded, and I expect no further communication from you. I'm sorry to be brief with you, but it seems like that's kind of your thing. Winky face. I wish you nothing but the best in all your penis-numbing endeavors, both professional and, I'm assuming, personal second winky face. Good day, Josh. Josh. And I wrote it that way for two reasons. Because I knew I wanted to write a terse, business-like email. Number one, to go on the record that I didn't want to deal with him anymore. Our business was done, this wasn't uh, communication I had asked for or anticipated, right? In case it came up again on a a legal avenue, I could prove there was a paper trail. The second reason that I wrote a terse, business-like email was because I knew that it would make him lose his goddamn mind and write back to me right away. (laughs) Which he absolutely did. He fell directly into my trap. He wrote a third email to me, which I did not read. (laughs) But I did respond. One sentence, all caps. I said good day, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Nemesis vanquished. Thank you very much. Have a great night. Bye. That
3: was Josh Gondelman. Josh is a comedian and writer for Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, for which he has earned a Peabody Award, two Emmy Awards, and a WGA Award. He has appeared on Conan and Late Night with Seth Meyers as a stand up. And his newest comedy album, Physical Whisper, debuted in March of 2016 at number one on the iTunes comedy charts and stayed there for, well, longer than he expected, honestly. He is also the co-author, along with Joe Berkowitz, of the book You Blew It, published October 2015 by Plume. His follow-up, Nice Try, is set to come out fall 2019 through Harper Perennial. Our second story today is told by two storytellers, Heather Berlin and Baba Brinkman. It was recorded in November 2017 at Caveat in New York. The theme that night was consciousness.
0: So, my life changed in September of 2012, and it was at an event similar to this one in some ways here in New York. It was called Lucid NYC, and it was sort of a science meets arts TED Talk style event, and I was to give a presentation, actually a performance, a rap performance. I'm not sure if you can tell, but that is what I do. I'm a rapper. And uh, my particular brand of hip-hop I call Peer Reviewed Rap, because I bring in a lot of science, and this one was specifically about evolutionary theory and Darwinian models of behavior.
2: So I'm a neuroscientist, and I was actually invited to speak at that same event to give a neuroscience talk. And before uh, my set or my talk, this rapper came on stage, and he was rapping about... uh, short-term versus long-term mating from an evolutionary biology and psychology perspective Uh and he was on stage you know he was he was doing his rap thing he was like grabbing his crotch and being like yo yo ain't no ho or something like that um and you know it wasn't the most attractive thing at first I have to admit (laughs)
0: Okay, but let's be clear. Yo, yo, I ain't no ho is not actually one of my lyrics. Uh, That was a very sophisticated rap about how the behavior that's preferred by many rappers, a.k.a. promiscuity, could actually be understood as evolutionarily adaptive, but only in certain environmental contexts. Yeah,
2: pretty much like yo, yo, ain't no ho.
0: Right that's yeah. not a bad paraphrase really.
2: So I mean he was up there rapping about basically saying that rap was like a peacock's tail. It was like uh to show your evolutionary fitness. Uh and it, it wasn't really working on me but I I, I was uh, true story. Um, I was intrigued by what was happening in his brain when he was rapping. Um, You know, that intricate lyricism, and you know, it has to rhyme, it has to stay on beat. It's a very cognitively demanding task. So I didn't necessarily want to take him home, but I did want to (laughs) bring him into my lab so I can run some tests on him. Um, But to demonstrate what I was experiencing that night, Bob, you want to give a little sample of your
0: skills? Now, when you listen to rapping, just ask yourself this. Why do people have this gift with craftsmanship? Is it just a cumulative effect of practicing? Nah, take it from the master of the adjectives. I think it's adaptive. It has to be instinct, in sync. With the rhythm, just listen and sync. Deep into the subconscious of the obnoxious sexual selection. I'm just ticking the boxes. And if you're feeling it, then yeah, mission accomplished. So I'm up there, you know, shaking my verbal tail feathers for the crowd. Uh, And then when I finish, a cognitive neuroscientist takes the stage, Dr. Heather Berlin, and she gives a talk about the dynamic unconscious brain and the neural basis of impulse control disorder behaviors, and her talk is filled with all these subliminal images she's showing in the slideshow, which you don't see till she points them out, and many of them have sort of sexually subjective themes to them. I can't say I really understood the neuroscience, but I did feel a strong compulsion. I was going to speak to her after she finished her talk.
2: Yeah. And I actually thought if I used those subliminal images in enough of my talks that eventually I'd meet the right guy. <laughs> so
0: That's much true. for free will, huh? Yeah.
2: It's pretty much an illusion. Um, but yeah, so he did. He Right after my talk, he sort of made a beeline straight for me. And it was a venue just like this one. Came up to me at the bar. Never met him before. And he just goes, "You know, so I really liked your talk. Uh, what's your situation? Are you single? Like <laughs> straight up. There was no small talk. Um, so it was a pretty impulsive, uh, you know, pretty forward pickup line. But I thought it was refreshing that he was polite enough to ask if I was single before he started, decided to hit on me. Most guys just start hitting on you. you know, they don't even know. So, so I said, yeah, I'm single. So as soon as I said that, he immediately whips out his phone. He has it in his hand. And he's like, OK, great. Can I get your number? And um, again, I appreciated that direct approach. So I gave him my number.
0: Well, she calls it impulsive, but I'm going to say it was strategic because from her talk, I could tell Heather was not the type of woman to be trifled with. Uh, Are you single was not really my number one pickup line, but I thought it was probably a good idea to signal my potential long-term mating interest from the jump <laughs> <laughs> to be safe.
2: So, so after this, there was an after party at a local pub for the speakers, and uh, I was there with some friends and I thought it was my opportunity that I can kind of observe his behavior in the wild um, and you know keep little tabs on him because I'd given him my number. So I, I'm watching him out of the corner of my eye and he's sitting there in the corner at this table, like all hunched over with his DJ friend and they're just eating these big, like gross, greasy hamburgers and he had like a pint of beer and he was just very like Neanderthal like. It's the only way I can describe it. And I was thinking, oh my God, I gave him my number?
0: Well, I'm thinking I've already got her number, so I can just relax and be myself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: So by that point, I'd pretty much written him off. Um, but then as I was like, getting up about to leave, he came over to me to kind of chat a bit and say goodbye. And then he gave me this sort of big, warm, bear hug, goodbye. And it was, he held me a little bit longer than you naturally would. But it just felt really warm. I got this great sort of energy from it. it must have been the oxytocin or something that kicked in. And I thought, you know what? Maybe I'll give this guy a chance. Maybe I'll go on a date with him.
0: And I figured if I gave enough women that kind of hug, eventually the oxytocin would do its <laughs> thing and... I'd meet the right woman. Yeah.
2: So we, uh, we had our first date at this like nice little restaurant in um, Soho, but that's when I got another red flag. So I get there, and he had already ordered, and he ordered this big plate of like fried calamari. Who and doesn't like calamari, right? <laughs> Me. I'm a vegetarian. So... <laughs> i <laughs> like, that was a bit presumptuous. Like, you didn't even ask, you know? Like, and now, so here I find myself again in a situation where I have
0: to sit there and watch them, like, gobble down this greasy food. Okay, but the, the conversation was very dynamic, uh, sparkling, I would even say, and it got into personality and why people end up with long-term relationships or friendships. So we started talking about this ocean scale of personality, which are the sort of basic domains that they measure, and telling stories from our lives to see if we could figure out how compatible we were on each of these five domains.
2: Yeah, so I was kind of just going like, you know, trying to get a gut feeling, how do I feel, do I like this guy or not? And he was sitting there like charting out this very like rational structure about like where we checked off in these personality domains and if we were compatible or not.
0: So the O in ocean stands for (laughs) openness to experience. And in this domain, we're pretty similar, although I'd say I'm a bit higher. Uh, One of the stories that I told on our first date was about how me and some friends in high school went down to the nude beach and went skinny skinny dipping. And we were there, and we said, oh, oh, damn, there's, like, a couple of our teachers from the school uh, naked on the beach. This could be awkward. And then we were like, ah, let's just go hang out with them. It'll be fine.
2: Yeah, so... (laughs) That's right. That was my reaction. I mean... Anybody anybody is going to be less open than him. I mean, he grew up in Vancouver in this very, like, hippie environment where they go swimming naked with their teachers. And, <laughs> you know, I grew up in New York, and I had actually just had gotten back from Europe, and I had been at the um, Vienna Opera Ball, and he had just gotten back from Burning Man. So there was... <laughs> a bit of...
0: So the C, the E, and the A in Ocean is conscientiousness, extroversion, and agreeableness. And in all three of those domains, it seemed like we were pretty similar, like in the same range. Maybe Heather was a bit higher. I'm definitely
2: higher in conscientiousness than you. And
0: I'm higher in agreeableness because I don't contradict you when you say things like that. Um, (laughs) And then when you get to the N, that's where we found a bit more of a disparity. The N in Ocean is for neuroticism, which is also sometimes measured as stability. They're opposite sides of the same coin. It's kind of a measure of how comfortable you are improvising with uh, random changes, curveballs in the situation versus having to have things pre-planned out. And in this one, it turns out we have a bit of a difference.
2: So uh, Baba was telling me stories about when he would go on tour rapping, he would just like crash on random people's couches. And I was like, look, When I travel, you know, I book a hotel in advance. I'm going to stay someplace comfortable. You know, we're, we're, so there was a little bit of a mismatch there.
0: Basically, I'm Mr. (laughs) Go with the Flow, and she's Mrs. Everything has to be perfect my way or the highway.
2: I mean, I wouldn't exactly, I'm not that neurotic, but I, I mean, I am a a Jewish girl from New York, so I think it kind of comes with the territory.
0: But but basically, we mapped this all out on the first date, how close we were in each domain. And then I kind of pitched her about how this is very highly compatible, the spectrum we're finding. And, you know, the only opposite we're going to find are going to cluster around this neuroticism stability domain. Therefore, we have a pretty good case for a long-term relationship potentially, which may have been uh, too much too soon. Uh, But I'm also quite high in a psychological trait that they call blurtaciousness, which means if you think it, you just say it.
2: Yeah. So as we were dating, I was kind of evaluating him, and he basically reminded me of one of my impulse control disorder patients. Um, (laughs) Yes. He uh, he presented with alcohol overuse, caffeine addiction, high-fat diet, lack of exercise, TV addiction, and what I would call impulsive sexual behavior.
0: You weren't complaining at the time, baby.
2: <laughs> Not at first. Uh- <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, he was kind of sizing me up for potential babies, and I was just kind of thinking of it as more of, like, a a short-term thing. And, you know, one of his sort of biggest assets was that his apartment was on my way home from work, (laughs) so it was kind of, like,
0: (laughs) convenient just to stop in and say hi and go for a drink. She was happy to explain that to me, so... Uh, from the beginning, I understood that she was looking at me as a pit stop, and I was looking at her as a potential destination. And at the time, I was also working on this play, sort of like a hip-hop theater show. Um, so each time we'd go on a date, some of the ideas from the date would end up sort of loosely informing the script of the play I was working on. It was going to open in November, uh, a few months after we met.
2: No, he actually literally wrote me into the play. So it was kind of like Shakespeare in Love, and all, you know, all of a sudden, it was like things that I had said on our dates – ended up verbatim in this show.
0: But I gave her fair warning. I, don't, I think it was our third date when I said to you, uh, don't freak out, um, but I'm writing a character in this play that's about to open off-Broadway, and it's going to be loosely based on you. And
2: Yeah, I mean, basically, the play was about this rapper in New York who was the, dating, and it was all about how his, he was dating from like an evolutionary perspective, and then he meets this neuroscientist <laughs> who talks just like me. <laughs>
0: Who I called the Oracle, because she seemed to know everything about brains and behavior and personalities. Uh, So the play has a scheduled opening, November the 23rd, and by opening night, we're seeing a lot of each other. I don't know if we were really official yet, uh, but I I would say we were dating, but we still had a few doubts. Uh, Basically, I hadn't really done the long-term relationship thing before then, so I had some doubts about the feasibility of monogamy for our species, let's say. Uh, But I didn't have doubts about her. I thought she was amazing. Uh, She had no doubts about monogamy, but serious doubts about me. (laughs) (laughs)
2: That's <laughs> true. So the next rag flag was that he had told me that his longest relationship ever was six months. And that was 10 years prior when he was 24 years old. So that wasn't the greatest thing in terms of my confidence in him. But um so I had my doubts. But my friends also had their doubts. So when I told them that I was dating a rapper named Baba... They were like, what? I mean, my last uh, ex was a corporate lawyer who went to like Harvard Law School. So, I mean, Baba wasn't exactly my type. Um, So I thought, you know what? I'm going to bring them to his show and they can kind of see him in action. And then I can get their opinion on him.
0: She came to the show 13 times.
2: I don't think it was that many times. It was more like five or six. Precisely
0: 13 times. And I was keeping track, because I thought her frequent attendance at the performance might be a potential signal of long-term mating interest. Um, And the way the play worked is there were dual endings. So on some nights, my character meets this neuroscientist called the Oracle and is totally swept off his feet and ends up going all in and they settle down and start a family. And in another version, uh, he meets her, he's really impressed by her, but he decides that it's not going to really quite work, because he wants to sort of like continue his Rolling Stone uh, sowing wild oats lifestyle and rides off into the sunset. And I let the audience decide which outcome would happen on each given night
2: he literally had them vote on me (laughs) so (laughs) again true story they would there was this system where they could text in at the end of the show yes or no whether he should stay with me or not and then this big cumulative graph comes up on the screen on stage that basically is like should he stay with oracle or not yes or no and every night it would be you know do I win or not?
0: I wanted my relationships to be informed by scientific fact-finding, let's say. Um, but there was a strange pattern that began to emerge, which was that on the nights that Heather attended the show, she always won the vote. But on the nights that she wasn't in the house, it was around 50-50. Lots of nights the audience would go, nah, you should just keep, keep looking. And I could not understand the source of this pattern.
2: So Maybe it was that you were just sort of portraying me more persuasively when I was in the house.
0: That's what I thought until a few months later when it was revealed that Heather had hacked the voting system uh, and discovered that there was no restriction against multiple votes. So I'm on stage watching the graph go through the roof and she's in the audience like, yes, 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 yes. I didn't vote that many times. (laughs) Well... It did remind me of a little pearl of wisdom that my mom dropped on me when I was a teenager. I came home from school and I was like, mom, these two girls both like me and I don't know which one to choose. And she sat me down and she said, let me give you a little bit of advice. It's the women that do the choosing in this world, son.
2: (laughs) Which is kind of like a key evolutionary principle, right? Because in general, females are more choosy when it comes to mates than males, right? Uh, So, you know, I guess I had kind of already unconsciously chosen him, but my sort of more conscious prefrontal cortex
0: was the last to know about it. Which means the peacock display on the night we met might have been more effective than she thought. Uh, Because we met on September the 5th, 2012, and we were married uh, just about exactly a year later on September the 3rd, 2013
2: but not before I actually did get him into my lab. And I ran personality measures on him, IQ testing. I got him into my scanner while he was rapping. Um, So I did a thorough examination, and he he passed, so I married him.
0: (laughs) You can scan me anytime, baby. (laughs) And,
2: uh, And our son, Dylan, just turned one year old. And our daughter, Hannah, is going to be four the day after tomorrow. And she was born on November 23rd, 2013, exactly one year to the day of the opening of the play.
0: Which was not precisely planned, although Hannah, as a pregnancy, was planned. uh, Which means she was entirely devised by our prefrontal cortexes.
2: Well... Maybe with a little help from our evolutionarily older subcortical unconscious biological impulses.
0: I love it when she talks nerdy to me like <laughs> that.
2: Thanks, honey. That's sweet. Thank you, guys. Thanks.
3: That was Heather Berlin and Baba Brinkman. As you may have guessed, Heather and Baba live together here in New York with their two children. Heather is a cognitive neuroscientist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. She practices clinical neuropsychology at New York Presbyterian Hospital while Cornell Medicine in the Department of Neurological Surgery and is a visiting scholar at the New York Psychoanalytic Society and Institute. She's host of the PBS series Science Goes to the Movies and the Discovery Channel series Superhuman Showdown, and co-wrote and stars in the critically acclaimed Off-Broadway and Edinburgh Fringe Festival show, Off the Top, about the neuroscience of improvisation. Baba Brinkman is a New York-based rap artist and playwright, best known for his Rap Guide series of hip-hop theater shows and albums, which communicate challenging scientific fields to the general public. Baba has produced rap guides to medicine, religion, evolution, climate change, consciousness, and wilderness, among other topics. He's performed on MSNBC's The Rachel Maddow Show, and toured worldwide, including runs at the Sydney Opera House, the Edinburgh Fringe, and Off-Broadway in New York. I actually saw Baba's rap guide to consciousness recently here in town at the Soho Playhouse, and it totally blew my mind, beyond what I had even expected. So its run has recently been extended at the Playhouse, so I totally recommend checking it out if you're in the area. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Liz Neely and Aaron Barker, that's me, with help from our amazing team. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by me, Erin Barker, as well as Paula Croxon, Samia Bouzid, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Caveat for hosting these shows and to Summer Love. Get out there and fall in love and make sure you collect lots of data on it. Thanks for listening.